Today we're carrying on in Ephesians 1. It's our third week in Ephesians 1. And we've been looking at the gospel and identity so far. Who Jesus says that we are or who we are inside of him. And we've really focused a lot on our position in Christ. What that means is who we are in him or how God sees us as he looks at us. And it's very different to our condition because every single one of us know that we are imperfect, we're sinful, we're broken in some ways. You might be an amazing person, but in some ways you're very, very different to God and very different from the ways he calls us to live. But the truest thing about you is who he says you are or who you are inside of him. So we spent a long time in that, and I hope it's going deeper into our hearts. I feel like for me, this has been like a fresh reminder, and like I've loved it. I've sat in a bunch of pastoral meetings over the last couple of weeks, and I feel like every time I sit down with someone, I'm just opening to Ephesians 1 to say, do you know who you are in Christ? You're blessed and chosen and adopted and holy and blameless and redeemed and forgiven and sealed with the Spirit and loved by God. Because if we can get who we are in Christ... It'll change how we live in light of who we already are in him. So today we're finishing up Ephesians 1. And Paul is going to carry on talking about who we are. But it's like Paul is going to change his focus. We can become very myopic and inward focused if we're just looking at ourselves all the time. And Paul spent 15 verses so far talking about who we are. And now he's going to look at us a little bit more and then focus us on who Jesus is. Because if we can get that right, who we are in Christ and who Jesus is, it can change our lives radically and completely forever. So if you do have a Bible with you, you can turn to Ephesians 1 verse 15. We're going to read to the end of the chapter. Normally I'd say otherwise you can turn and look at the screen behind me. But today I think you're just going to listen to me read through this passage. I decided to read through the NIV translation today. It's a different one to what we normally use. It's the New International Version. I just love the way that it puts this passage or these truths together for us. And it says this. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, And his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. We've been speaking a little bit about Paul, who is the author or the writer of this passage. And Paul was about 60 years old and writing from prison when he writes this letter to the church in Ephesus. And I love what he starts writing here in verse 15. He writes about what he has heard about them. I think that's quite a cool thing. I don't know how he heard what he heard being in prison. Maybe he had visitors coming from all the different churches he'd been involved in to see him and be encouraged by him and encourage Paul. But he seems to have heard a little bit of what's been going on in Ephesus, some uh, holy gossip, the hot gossip of what's going on in this church. And he writes to encourage them that the two things he's heard about their church is that they're a loving community and they're a faith-filled community. 
I don't know what else was going on there, but that is the news that got back to Paul and that he wants to encourage this church and well done for your love and your faith. And I read that and I thought to myself, I wonder what people would say about Harbor City. You know, from time to time, I bump into people around and they say, oh, I know about your church. You guys meet in Glenwood. Hey, is it Harbor something? And I go, yeah, Harbor City, Harbor City. And I just think, I wonder what people would say or what we would want them to say about the community that God is forming here, you know? And I thought about our vision, which is to know Jesus and make Jesus known and how I would love it if, as we heard the holy gossip, the hot goss about what's going on in this church, if people were saying, oh, your church, I know what's going on in your church. People are starting to know Jesus. People are taking their next steps to follow him and grow in their faith and mature to become more and more like him and do the things that he's called us to do. And there's just a being formed into his image happening more and more in your church, you know. Or maybe if I bumped into one of your co-workers and they said, oh, yeah, I know all about your church. One of your, the members of your church sits next to me at work and they keep telling me about Jesus, even though they know I don't believe. But you know what I've seen? When they first started coming to your church, they were quite self-righteous. They were quite arrogant. They were quite boastful. But I've noticed a change in them over the last while. They've become more real and authentic. They've actually become kinder, more thoughtful people. And even though I'm not going to come and visit your church, they've made me think about Jesus a bit more. I think that would be such a cool thing to hear, you know. Well, in a way. You know what I'm saying, mate. Come on. (laughs) Um, And the fact is that Paul, who writes about this, was the man who planted this church. It seems like between 52 and 54 AD, he was based in Ephesus, establishing and strengthening this church. And then for the next seven years, he's been away. So this is written nine or 10 years later in about 62 AD. And it seems like Paul hasn't been back in seven years. So you can imagine this church has changed, you know, new people have come into this church, some have moved to other parts of the Roman Empire, and Paul doesn't know the people of the church or necessarily what's going on. He hasn't seen them, but he's been praying for them. He's been praying for this church and what God is wanting to do in them. And he tells us a little bit about what he wants to pray for them. But I just thought of you. We've had a lot of people in this community move on to other cities or other countries or other towns or other villages. And I just think in seven years' time, if God moved you on from here, would Harbor City still be in your heart? Would you still be praying for this church? And what would you be praying? What would you think would be important for God to do in this community? We actually have a prayer meeting this Thursday night from 6 to 7 on the 21st of June. We've got six of our deacons who are going to be leading us through the book of Ephesians and praying that God would form those things in this church. I'd love to invite you to come and join us. We'll be just downstairs praying. But we do get an idea of what Paul prays and what he thought was important to be prayed for the church. And in verse 17 and 18, it says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is what Paul thought was important to pray for this 10-year-old church, that they would know God more and that their inner world would be enlightened to who God is. As I read that, I just thought a little bit about Wikipedia. You know, you go into a Wikipedia page, and whatever it is you look up, like, I'm one of those guys who if someone talks about a celebrity or a politician or an idea I don't know about, I instantly Google it and go on the Wikipedia page just to get, like, a bit of an idea. 
And when you get on that page, there are all of those blue underlined words there that if you click on, there are hyperlinks to another page, which has got more information and more links. And it's very easy, if you're anything like me, to sit and start looking something spiritual up about God. And in 10 minutes or half an hour, an hour or two hours, it's happened before, I'm on some Marvel comic character page that I've never heard of, you know, just hyperlooped into the space. And I feel like as Paul is speaking there about the spirit of wisdom and revelation, he's talking about this, you know. Really, God is simple. The gospel is simple. I can give you the gospel in a nutshell in three words. God saves sinners. But each of those are blue, underlined, hyperlink words that if you were to click on, take you into a page that is full of content. If I say God and we go into the God page, there would be all sorts of different tabs under there. You just think, God, personal life. And you'd have all the interactions with Adam and Eve or Abraham or Joseph or Elijah or John or whoever it might be. And you could read all of those stories or about God, God's attributes. And you might say, well, God is love. What does love mean? And you click and you go into the love page and you read about love. Or God is omnipotent. He is all powerful. And you go into that page and you read about that and the links off of there. Or he's transcendent. He's far above everything else. But he's imminent. He's closely involved in our lives. And he's supreme. He rules over everything that exists. But actually, God comes and he's intimately involved in our lives. You just think of how many hyperlinks and connections there would be. This stuff is really simple. But it's also deep and wide. And Paul isn't just praying that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we'd have more information. That's not what he wants here. He's praying for a spirit of wisdom. Wisdom is what we do with knowledge, what we do with information and revelation that these truths would become real and personal to us. Not just that we would know about God, but that we would see him. We would experience and encounter him for ourselves and that we would know this God. That is what he is desiring and what he wants for us. Paul has spent a whole chapter telling us who we are in Christ. And now he's going to end this chapter telling us who Christ is. So the first part of that prayer, Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened so that we would know the hope to which God has called us. Now, hope is an idea that we all know about, you know, might be something we'd struggle to define a bit. But it's something we all know about and have experienced. And when Paul speaks about hope here, he's speaking about a confident expectation. A confident expectation of who God is. And like we've been speaking about, who we are inside of him. And I want to remind you again that Paul is writing from prison. You know, Paul is speaking about hope from prison. You know, he's been imprisoned for serving God and preaching the gospel. And I don't know about you, but I think me on my worst days, at least, maybe even my best days, if I was Paul at 60 years of age in prison for serving God, I would be a bit angry. You know, you think, God, why me? You know, I'm one of the good guys. Like, why couldn't you put some bad criminal sinner in this prison instead of me? I'm on your team. I'm doing good work for you. Set me free. But Paul doesn't even speak in this letter about getting out of prison. You know, he speaks about hope to this church at a time where he should be hopeless and discouraged. He's in the Mamantine prison in Rome. It's sort of been a cold dungeon. And I mean, sometimes we see prisons on TV that seem really, really nice. You know, there's TV in your cell, and there's like a place that you can go to gym, and you can kind of do a degree there on the side. I know not all prisons are like that. But sometimes we get that idea that prisons can be a bit cushy. Paul is in a dungeon. You know, the government at that time wouldn't come and bring you food if you were in prison. So you needed family or friends or someone to come and feed you. Otherwise, you would starve and die. 
Paul, in one of his other letters to Timothy, writes and says, can you bring my cloak to me? I have need of it. What he means is, I am cold in prison. It wasn't his favorite item of clothing that he really missed out on. You know, he wanted to wear it around the prison cell. <laughs> That's not what is going on. Paul is cold, and he knows without this jacket, he might freeze. This dungeon was a really tough place for him to be. You can understand that he could be hopeless and a little bit grumpy. And one of the things that we notice in this passage is that there is a lot of suffering and persecution and hardship towards the church. Paul is in prison for living out his faith and serving God, and a whole bunch of other Christians from that church in that area were in prison or were even killed for their faith, just like our brothers and sisters around the world are going through a similar thing today. But there was a lot of suffering and hardship going on at that time. If you read Fox's Book of Martyrs, you can read about the first and second and third century and how Christians suffered for their faith. I've talked here about Nero before, one of the leaders of the empire who would kill Christians and then impale them on stakes and set them on fire in the driveway to his palace to light up that path when people came and visited his home at night. Christians were persecuted. And it's almost like there's this elephant in the room at the time that Paul's not addressing. He's just pushing the suffering and hardship that they're going through aside to speak about hope. It's crazy, hey? The reality is that in our world and in our city and in our country and in many of our lives, there are things that make life hard or make life full of struggle or suffering. I had an interesting moment probably last month when Andy Rogers was out. He spoke to a group of pastors and someone asked him, well, what do you see in our city? You know, you're an outsider from a different country and a different city coming into Durban. What stands out to you is very different in our context. The first thing he said is, well, it's a beachside city like my hometown of San Diego. And he said, so comfort and just being laid back or relaxed. It's a big part of the culture of Durban. The second thing is he just said the racial division in our city is so obvious to him. You know, America has got its own issues with racism and systemic injustice. But he said, it's so obvious for me coming into Durban and also being in Joburg, how strongly entrenched in your culture and society that is. But I think we all know both of those things. The third thing he said, which really struck me, is he spoke about fear. He said, driving around Durban, he was amazed seeing electric fences and barbed wire and burglar bars and alarm systems and security gates in our homes. He joked, and I think he might have said this here too, that the first time he saw an electric fence was watching Jurassic Park as a child, you know. So for him, driving around here is a very different thing. And he said, our context is a context where whether it's in the foreground, something we're aware of or not, there's a lot of fear and uncertainty and risk and stress and anxiety about what could happen that's going on. And for Paul, when he writes here in Ephesians 1 about hope, he's not ignoring the reality of the suffering and persecution that is going on in the church. He's not doing that at all. He's well aware of what is going on. He acknowledges the realities that we see around us. But he also wants to acknowledge the reality of God. He's not ignoring the fact that God is real and powerful in our life and in our situation and in our city. And I think for some of us, what can happen is on Sundays we come here and we sing songs, whether there's power or whether there isn't power. And we pray prayers and whether we we listen to a talk about God and we leave and we make decisions and live our lives as Christian atheists. It's like God is a part of our lives, but he's more of an idea than a reality in the difficulties and the struggles and the anxiety and the hard moments that we face. And here Paul is saying, my prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be opened 
that you would see God and be filled with hope in the hard realities that you face because he is a powerful God no matter what it is that you've got. And I don't know what the difficulties are that you face at the moment, you know. I don't know if it's something at work. I don't know if it's financial. I don't know if it's with your family. I don't know if it's a health thing. I don't know if it's an issue of your faith. But I want to say that God is bigger than the struggles that we face. They are real. They are completely real. We want to acknowledge and own that. But so is God. And he is powerful in our situations and in our struggles. And he wants us to see who we are and who he is and to give us fresh lenses to see every situation we face and be able to tackle it or handle it or walk into it with hope. In Psalm 42, verse 5 and 6, it says, Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Durban, South Africa. And sometimes what Paul is saying here, sometimes our circumstances don't need to change. But the way we see our circumstances or the way we see God or the way we see ourselves needs to change for us to handle what we are facing in that moment. Paul's writing from prison. In this letter, as far as I've seen, he doesn't once ask to be set free from prison because he knows that God is king over his imprisonment or his freedom. You know, he knows that God rules and reigns over that. So he's saying in the midst of my suffering, the eyes of my heart have been opened to see the hope that is in God. And for you, no matter what you face, can you also see the hope that is in him for your struggles and your situation? The second thing Paul prays is that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened so that we would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And every time I read that passage building up to this week, I misread it. Paul in Ephesians 1 has been speaking about our inheritance the whole time. In verse 11, verse 14, and other places, he talks about our inheritance in Christ until this moment here where he talks about his inheritance, God's inheritance, which is probably a bit of a different thing for us to think about, God's inheritance. And he speaks about God's inheritance in the saints, which is you and I. Remember a few weeks ago we said, The saints are the holy ones, the called out ones. That's what God calls us in Christ. Paul is writing and saying that God's inheritance is you and I. God's inheritance is us. And that's a bit of a mind-blowing thing to think about. You know, God needs nothing. God is perfect in every way. God doesn't need. God is self-sustaining. He's self-sufficient. He was perfectly happy before anything existed. It was just Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in this perfect relationship for all time. They were good. But this passage tells us that God wants something. And what God wants is you and I. That's what he wants. He doesn't need you, but he wants you to spend all of eternity with him forever, to enjoy him and for him to get to enjoy you. And I think that's a huge thing to think about, you know. I think some of us in this room struggle with the thought that God loves us, you know. Or a few weeks ago, I was talking about all of these things that we are in Christ, our new identity. We struggle with those things. So to be told that God values you more than anything else and God wants you and you are called the inheritance of God is maybe a bit of a struggle for us to absorb. But if you don't think you're good enough or you've sinned too much or the situation you're in is terrible, that is why Jesus died on the cross. And Paul wants us to see the value that God gives to you and to I. So think about this. 
you get an invitation tomorrow, the most fancy letter you've ever gotten. And it's an invite to Bill Gates' birthday party. I know, Bill Gates, richest man in the world currently. You get this invite and you're so excited. You're thinking, I get to go to his home and I get to check it out. It's like a small dinner party, just 12 people. And you're trying to think in your mind, who is going to be there? Probably presidents or tech moguls or captains of industry or massive global influencers will be at this birthday. And you'll be there and you'll be able to ask questions and learn and just check things out. It's going to be incredible. And you get really excited about this event until you think to yourself, what am I going to wear and what am I going to buy him as a present? You know, what am I going to buy Bill Gates? And I thought, I don't have a few million bucks lying around that I can buy some golden crown or some (laughs) rare car or some island. I don't know what billionaires want for their birthdays, but whatever you get him, I don't have the money to buy that for Bill Gates. What am I going to do? You know, what do you get for the man who's got everything? What do you get for the man who can get anything that they want? And Paul's not speaking here about Bill Gates. He's speaking about the king of the universe, about God. And when he tells us what God wants, he tells us, it's you and it's me. What God wants for his inheritance is you and me. The thing he values more than anything else in the universe is you. And just imagine that moment when God finally gets this glorious inheritance that he's wanted for all time. He's going to prize and cherish and love and adore you and I more than anything that has ever been loved in all of the history of the world. That is going to be a really good moment. We need the eyes of our heart enlightened so that we can see that that is true. Jesus shares this parable in Matthew 13, verse 44. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And for you and I, that is what happens when we get the truth of all of this. When we see how much God loves us, when we see how much he has done for us, that Jesus died on the cross for us, that actually Jesus valued us so highly that he would die. When we see that he gave everything for us, in turn, we give everything for him. We are the man in the story. You know, we go out and we sell everything we have to take hold of the treasure of Jesus and the gospel and his kingdom. But before that can happen, Jesus lived out this parable. You know, Jesus saw you and I, And he said, you are my glorious inheritance. He found us and he covered us. And for the joy set before him, he sold everything. He gave everything that he have away so that he could buy us, so that he could have us. He paid with his blood. He gave everything that he had to purchase you so that you could be his forever. That's the good news of the gospel of what he has done for us. Who are you? You were loved by God that greatly that he would give absolutely everything for you. And who is he? He is the kind of God who loves you more than anything has ever been loved in the history of the universe. On this Father's Day, as we celebrate the fathers in the room, he is a good, good father who loves you more than any father has loved any child ever before. He cherishes and prizes you. You are valued in the eyes of the king of the universe. And the third thing that Paul prays that the eyes of our heart would be enlightened with is so that we would know his incomparably great power for us who believe. Now, I really like that phrase, incomparably great power. And um, just to kind of nerd out on Greek for a little second here, the Greek word for greatness is the word megathos. And the Greek word for um, power is the word dunamos, where we get dynamite from. 
So really the picture Paul is using there in verse 19 is of the megaton dynamite of God, which is a really fancy way of talking about this incredible power of his. But the other word that should stand out to you is the word incomparable or incomparable. I'm not sure what the right South African way of saying that word is. I've kind of toyed back and forth this week. The incomparable power of God. And what we do instantly when we try and compare or when we try and describe something is we compare it. You know, so when you talk about the power of something, you say, oh, well, it's like this. So if we talk of God's power, we think, okay, well, a hurricane is like one thousandth of the power of a nuclear warhead, which is like a millionth of the power of an explosion on the face of the sun, which is like a billionth of the power of a supernova. And we kind of keep doing this and we say, okay, well, if that's the scale, like hurricane, nuclear warhead, supernova, whatever it is, where is God? Well, Paul says he's not on that scale. You know, we could say oh, a trillion times a supernova and we try and get up there. God's not on that scale. He has an incomparably great power. That's how powerful God is. And the power that he's talking about is at work in you and in I. We need the eyes of our heart enlightened to believe that that's true. So I think so many of us think, well, God's out there. His power's out there. But his power is at work inside of you and I. Paul wants us to see who we really are in Jesus. And he wants us to see who Jesus really is. And I just went and read the message version of this passage. And Eugene Peterson ends this from verse 20 to 23, saying this. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven in charge of running the universe. Everything from galaxies to governments. No name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He is in charge of it all. Has the final word on everything. At the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. Why is that? Because the church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. And there's this word fullness there. The way the NIV says that is the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. This word fullness in Greek is the word pleroma, which really means that we are the glory of God. You and I are the glory of God, the body of God filled with the presence and power of God, displaying God to the world. And Tim Keller talks about this and he says, maybe the best way we can understand this phrase is to think that God comes into his own through us. So that kind of saying, you know, you think of someone who's young and you see potential in them, you know. You think when they grow up, they're going to be dot, dot, dot. And then over time as they grow up, they come into their own. They become who you always knew that they could be. Or you think of a sports player who over time becomes more and more skilled. You know, they always had the raw talent. They always had the ability. But with some experience, with some practice, with a few games under their belt, all of a sudden they come into their own and they crush it in their sport. And what Paul is saying here is that God comes into his own through his body, the church. That actually over time we are growing into a community of people where God displays the fullness of who he is through us. Or maybe since it's Father's Day, just a, an analogy with children. I don't have kids, but some of my parent friends have told me that when your kids do well, you're so proud of them. You know? You've taught them and you've invested into them. And to see your kids say something that has come out of your mouth, 
to see your kids do something that you have taught them to achieve, to succeed in some way. You're so proud because you're linked to them. You know, they are your glory. You're so proud of them. It's like your fullness is flowing through them. Or if your kids fail, it hurts you so much because they represent you. And that's what Paul is speaking about here. Is this picture that the church, the body of Christ, would be the fullness of him. That we would be filled. It's your breath in our lungs as we sung this morning. That we would be filled with all the fullness of God. And as we go out into the world today and tomorrow and the rest of the week. That all of the fullness of God would be displayed through us. And that God would be so glorified in our lives and in this community. As people see him in us. They hear his words through our mouths. They see his actions through our actions. They see his love through the way that we treat one another. And for us, Harbor City, this is what we are called to do. In Christ, we are all blessed, chosen, adopted, holy, blameless, redeemed, forgiven, sealed, and his inheritance. That is who you are. And now he wants through us to display the beauty of who he is, his glory and his fullness through our lives. And we need the eyes of our hearts enlightened so that we would see his great love for us, his great power, be filled with hope, know the value that he gives to us and become the community that he's calling us to be. Can I ask you to stand with me and we're gonna praise and pray a bit.